0: And I think that's where fat liberation really can come in because you know everyone's trying to carve out their own space for them mm-hmm. whereas actually body liberation and, and fat liberation is all about widening that lens to other people we're not just trying to carve out the space for ourselves individually yes. we're trying to carve out spaces and take up space in a way that honors other people's space that they're taking up as well and uplifting the bodies that are the most marginalized Mm -hmm. and going okay these are the people who need this space and we want them to have this space they deserve unconditionally to have this space as well
1: Hey, and welcome back to Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where I'm asking my guests who or what they're nourishing right now and who or what is nourishing them. I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Just a very quick reminder before we get to today's episode that for the month of March, I'm running a sale on Can I Have Another Snack paid subscribers to celebrate our half birthday. If you sign up now, you get 20% off either a monthly or annual subscription. This is a really good deal and I won't be offering it again this year. So head to laurathomas.substack.com to sign up. You get to join in our weekly community discussion threads, plus bonus podcast episodes, twice monthly essays, including my Dear Laura column, and more importantly, you're helping making this work possible. And if for any reason you can't afford a subscription right now, you can email hello at uk and put the word snacks in the header and we'll hook you up with a comp subscription, no questions asked. So today I am joined by the wonderful Jeanette Thompson-Wesson and we are going to be answering listener questions that you've sent in and there are some really great questions. But if you don't already know Jeanette, she is a fat positive nutritionist who supports people to heal their relationship with food and their body. And if you want to know more about Jeanette, then I really recommend listening to the episode of Don't Stop My Game that we did together last summer. I'll link to it in the show notes. So go check that out. And how this is going to work is that we're going to take it in turns to ask questions and then kind of bounce off of each other to come up with answers. All right, Jeanette, are you ready? I am ready. Should we get into it? Let's do it. So you're going to start off with the first question and yeah, let's see where it goes.
0: So here is your first question from Ger. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the connection between diet mentality and gut problems with constipation.
1: Okay, so Jeanette and I just had a little back and forth about what exactly this question was getting at, because I think what they're asking is if there is a physiological response in terms of our digestion based on the way we think about food and our relationship with food. Yeah. And so I think that's my understanding of the question. But just in case, I maybe want to take a step back and think about what happens to our gastrointestinal tract When we go on a diet, right? So whether it's, you know, your run-of-the-mill everyday diet, like a slimming world or Weight Watchers or whatever, or whether it's, you know, more severe disordered eating or an eating disorder, basically the same thing happens in all of those cases. It's just the degree to which it happens gets more intense, gets worse, the more severe. Problems around eating are. So, what we could expect to happen is because the total amount of energy available to the body is not enough to support all its basic functioning, a lot of those basic processes like menstruation, like digestion, all of these things that are considered in inverted commas non essential, they slow down so that there's enough energy to divert towards essential functions like. Primarily your brain, right? So what happens in our digestive tract is that we have, Jeanette's going to love how nerdy I'm going to (laughs) get. But we have what's called delayed gastric emptying. So the contents of our stomach, literally emptying, slows down. It's sometimes called, when it gets really severe, it's called gastroparesis, where it's almost like this partial paralysis of the stomach so that contents don't from the stomach don't get properly turned around in the stomach. And then when the, and then it's the release into our small, our small intestine is a lot slower. So you get, you have this feeling of fullness for a lot longer after eating a meal. And you might also fill up relatively quickly or feel feel full quite quickly after eating. What happens in our guts, so in our small and our small intestine primarily, is we have slowed peristalsis. So peristalsis is the action of um, the muscles along our gastrointestinal tract contracting and pushing food through our guts, right? And basically, because there's less there's less energy available to the body, that process slows down. That's why you get constipated, or you might get mixed. IBS type symptoms where you alternate between constipation and diarrhea. So that is effectively what is going on in your gastrointestinal tract when you're strict. And it's also why we say a lot in eating disorder recovery and and when we're working with people with disordered eating is that the best way to heal your gut is not through going on some sort of low FODMAP diet or some leaky gut protocol or whatever other bullshit is out there, is it actually having regular, consistent, adequate nutrition and nourishing your body. That's what heals any gut related issues. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't in some cases where people maybe have intolerances or other, you know, have to be mindful of of what they're eating for other medical reasons. But that broadly speaking, that unless we have enough energy on board, and we're eating regularly, then it just sends our guts Kind of haywire, right? Would you have anything to add to that, Jeanette?
0: I mean, have a lot of clients who've experienced that, and also I have a lot of personal experience with that. When I did Slimming World, I was—I mean, too much information—we're going to say anyway. I was over really it, no badly, such thing. Like really badly constipated, yeah. And I knew exactly what was going on in my body. Even as a nutritionist, I was like, I know what's happening. I know exactly why. I am constipated right now and still chose to obviously do what I was doing because of my own internalized fat phobia, because I was working from a place where I thought I had to be thinner Mm -hmm. than what I was at the time. And it's, it's really quite, it's really quite horrible to be in that place where you're like, oh my goodness, my body should be doing this. It doesn't feel comfortable. And, but when you really think about it and you tear everything, like you strip everything back how amazing is our body to basically put ourselves in these like survival modes mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. because actually if we didn't have that delay within our body um, how would we actually be feeling within ourselves without with our hunger hormones and stuff if we didn't have that delay we'd actually be feeling probably quite ill really mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. worse even more miserable than what be, we be, would be feeling and I think that's the thing that kind of blows my mind with all of these biological processes that go goes on is that we forget that when we're actually dieting, we're putting our body in that place of restriction, which our body doesn't actually realize that that's intentional.
1: Mm -hmm. I
0: mean, it's clever, but it doesn't realize that we're actually choosing to do that. It just goes, Oh my goodness, like what is happening? We're not getting you know, what we, mm-hmm. we should be getting into our body. And these things happen. So it just blows my mind. It's, it's, I always love it. I'm a science nerd myself. So
1: <laughs> well, it's enjoyable. There, there's something else that I want to talk about here, which is what I wonder if the question was kind of getting Ooh. at. So i I feel like I've maybe answered a different question, but I just wanted to give that context because I'm sure a lot of people will wonder like, okay, well, what is actually happening inside my body as I'm restricting, right? Whether it's like you say through, you know, like legitimate food scarcity in, you know, if someone is food insecure, or you know, from a evolutionary perspective, if there just wasn't enough food around, right? That's why this this process is there in in the first place, right? Conservation of the species, but mm-hmm. then there's the other side of things, which is this voluntary, and we could argue if it's voluntary or not under diet culture, but mm-hmm. you know, like putting ourselves on a diet. What is that doing both from a physiological perspective, but what is the diet mentality? So just the kind of mindset of restricting ourselves, what does that do to our digestion? And I think this is, I don't know specifically of any literature that connects both of those dots quite as clearly, but I do know that there is Something called the nocebo effect so the nocebo effect is essentially the inverse of the placebo effect so if i tell you this pill has like magic qualities and it's going to make you feel amazing and you take the pill you're going to start feeling amazing that's the placebo effect but equally if i tell you that gluten in your food or like You know, milk, protein, strawberries, and it could be literally anything. If I tell you that that's bad for you, even though it doesn't cause a, you know, even though there's no physiological basis for um, you to have a reaction to that food, the nocebo effect means that you do have a very real response to that food. Not because there's something, you know, kind of defective in your digestion, but because of the gut-brain axis and the connection between our brains and our guts. And so that can have major impacts on digestion. And there are studies that have shown that people were given... So there were two groups. They all had self-described lactose intolerance both groups were given sugar pills. One group were told that the pills had lactose in them. The other group were told that they didn't have lactose in them. And of course, the group that were told that they had lactose in the pills had a physiological response. So they reported increased bouts of diarrhea and constipation, right? Versus the group that were told that it was just sugar pills, even though they were all receiving sugar pills. But it shows you that there's a real strong physiological impact on our digestion just because the seed has been planted in our brains which is that blows my mind that that's even a real thing Crazy,
0: isn't it I yeah. see that a lot with people who um go for like allergy testing you know the kind of ones where you can send like something oh, off yeah. on the internet or I don't know when it, one of those kind of pay 50 pounds and we'll give you a list of all these random things that mm-hmm. we think that you are intolerant or allergic to and you get this this back and I'm like oh my god how many things am I supposed to be intolerant to and, you know, people start restricting these things and having exactly the same reaction that you, you know, you said, you know, actually, I feel so much better without these being in my body. And when I do have a strawberry, like one of the interesting things is like strawberry comes up quite a lot in my experience. <laughs> when I do eat a strawberry, oh, I feel awful. I have like diarrhea and this happens and that happens. And and I think that that gut brain access is is so incredibly powerful. And then one of the other things it kind of like takes me to when we're dieting as well dieting is incredibly stressful like really really stressful and um it also makes us feel very miserable and then when you're coming up to weigh in day the anxiety the nervousness of of have i lost weight have i not lost weight and actually having to stand on a scale the gut brain access as well like access can actually have a big impact there as well and cause that constipation Mm -hmm. and you know having diarrhea as well because of that really strong reaction you can have to just actually being on the diet and the mentality that comes with being on the diet as well and And, i think we forget about that mental link that we have
1: mm -hmm. and there are studies that show that that dieting increases your cortisol levels right so your stress stress hormones so although there, so i guess what we're saying is although there's no like like single study I can point to there are lots of potential mechanisms by which like just the thought of going on a diet and people know themselves right like how many times have you thought okay like diet starts tomorrow therefore I have to like eat everything in the cupboards right now what impact do we think that's going to have on our digestion if we just like flood our bodies with with more food than it can handle in one go like of course that's going to have an impact on your on your digestion so okay should we head on to the second question let's do this this is a question for you Jeanette this is um from Monica and I think it will become clear why I wanted to ask you this question so Monica says I began intuitive eating a few months ago after years and years of heavy restricting and recovering from an eating disorder, I've had problems feeling the fullness and hunger cues, but I feel like I now manage it, not perfectly, but okay. And I try not to get too hung up on it. What I most struggle with is noticing my hunger and eating properly during my work day. I work as a teacher and many days I do not have a proper break, maybe like 10 to 15 minutes in total. I'm also often really stressed during the day and I end up snacking the whole day every time I have five minutes by myself at my desk and I end up never feeling hungry and never feeling satisfied either. Do you have some tips for intuitive eating at work? At home, when I manage my time, it's a lot easier. So yeah, Monica, the question totally makes sense. And I wanted to ask you that because up until pretty recently, you were a teacher. So (laughs) what are your thoughts reading this question? My thoughts
0: are like my heart goes out to you because obviously we know at the moment and just in general that teaching is an incredibly stressful career to be in and you very very rarely have time to slow down so I completely understand where actually you say that you can kind of pick up your hunger and fullness Cues not perfectly and not being hung up on that, but then also eating throughout the day as well. I mean, it's no wonder really that you eat the way that you eat because of school. Because, like with teaching, you have such little time to yourself, and I want to say how important it is to think of intuitive eating as an like not as like hard and fast rules because we don't want to be approaching intuitive eating like a diet Mm -hmm. and actually coming from a place of imperfection is completely fine especially in the space that you're in at the moment coming from the teacher point of view as well I would ask you is there any way you can try and carve out some time and space during the day during your break times and your lunch times, you can really take some time out. Is there somewhere you can go to eat that serves you? You know, have you got an office? Have you got a, a, a place away from your desk? I think it's one of the important things because when we're sitting at a desk and we're trying to do a thousand and one things at the same time as a teacher, we're checking the emails, we're trying to do a detention, we've got kids in front of us, we're trying to answer things, we're trying to create resources, we're trying to lesson plan, all throughout our lunch times as well. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that chance to sit back and really have a listen to ourselves and being able to honour our hunger, which is why it makes complete sense why you are going to be eating and snacking throughout the day. And that eating and that snacking throughout the day also I want to say how normal that normal that is. Yes. Yeah. And how um, you know in the stress of that job, job if you're eating that as almost like an emotional regulator during the day that is also completely valid mm-hmm. to be doing as well because if you are in that moment and you're feeling that stress and it's a long time to be under stress from whenever you you know, had to work like 7.30, 8 and end up leaving like 5, 5 5.30, then, you know, you've got loads of work to do in the evening. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got that anticipation as well. And we also don't have time. We're time poor people as teachers. We don't have enough time to be able to be checking in on ourselves. And we don't have enough time to be putting other coping mechanisms in place that would actually be really healthy things for us to have in place as teachers as well so Mm. I would say at this at the moment if there's nothing you can change in the teaching role that you're in right now to be able to carve out that time away from your desk to be able to honor that hunger when you can honor that hunger is to understand that coming from imperfection and intuitive eating is perfectly fine and know that hopefully sometime soon you will be able to listen to those internal cues in a much better way maybe when there's less pressure maybe um, if and when you want to make a change to the role that you have as well and also to know that following intuitive eating during your time away from work is also just as important as well and being able to take that time to honor yourself then.
1: Yeah I'm really glad that you said that you know what you're doing is fine like if that's what you need to do to get through the day and survive, yeah. it's okay that, you know, for you, intuitive eating doesn't look like, you know, three perfect meals and however many snacks a day, that it, it just means putting something in your mouth when you can and it's making intuitive. sure. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And sometimes like if it feels better than, just drop the label intuitive eating, right? Yeah. Because you know, I think that we associate intuitive eating with looking a particular way.
0: Oh my god.
1: And yeah. yeah, And it doesn't have to be perfect. So, you know, how can how can you maybe bring a little bit more acceptance to, you know, if you like you say, if you can't change anything, which like I feel like if she could, she probably would have, it's hard. It's hard to so yeah, you know, like how can you maybe even bring a bit more self-compassion to that of like, well, fuck, this is hard. And teaching is a really hard job. And I have a lot of other pressures. So I don't need to put more pressure on feeding myself. I can just let it be what it is for now. And, you know, if it, if it's, I, I appreciate that, like, you're not really ever feeling hungry, but never feeling satisfied either. And if that feels like it's more of a problem than you know taking a look at like what what are you bringing with you right what is it that you know is gonna help you feel more satisfied with what you're eating so is it that you need to bring a bit more balance to what you've got there like have I don't know a bit more protein or a bit more carbohydrates or something to help power you through the next like set of lessons or, or whatever is do you have like I'm thinking is there anything practical that you can think of Jeanette in terms of like helping this person feel a bit more satisfied with what they're eating
0: I would say what I see from teachers is bring more have yes. a, I always used to have a whole drawer in my desk literally dedicated snacks because we're up so early in the morning um I, you know, I, I have children as well that I had to sort out in the morning, so my priority wasn't actually making sure I had enough snacks in my bag for when I got to school. So, I actually just went out and I'd go out every couple of weeks and I'd buy so many long-life snacks that I could just keep in there, and that was a mixture of a whole load of things. It was a mixture of cereal bars and little packets of raisins and nuts. And also chocolate and caramel buttons and Oreos and so I just literally have that all available to me and it was literally in my desk mm-hmm. so I could just snack as I went to a, like as I went along the day and that was a really helpful thing for me to put in place for myself yeah. as well as bringing a really big bottle of water because mm-hmm. otherwise
1: yes
0: I would right. just not drink anything because I just didn't have any time to.
1: Ugh. Yeah, I think getting like having a snack drawer. And I was thinking, as you were saying, like, I think you said pretzels, maybe. And I was like, oh, yeah, like something crunchy, something that's going to give you, you know, thinking about like your sensory, like what's going to make, help you feel satisfied from a sensory perspective. Is it that you need, you know, something like crisp and crunchy, or do you prefer something chewy and soft, or, you know, what is it that will help you feel satisfied? Even, you know, with that five minute little snack session that you can have. So, yeah, hopefully, Monica, that gives you some ideas to think about. All right. Shall we do this next question? What have we got? Okay. My sister-in-law
0: is, to my mind, extremely extra about her kid, currently too, and sugar whereas we take much more relaxed approach with ours currently for example we went out for coffee last weekend both sets of parents and kiddos they had a massive slice of cheesecake of which their small was allowed a thumb-sized piece well that's really sad I while know. they ate the rest whilst they ate the rest we merrily let ours get stuck into our banana bread and chocolate chips As they get older, what's the best way to explain this disparity in attitudes to our kiddo? And how do we handle it with our nephew if he's, if you ask why his cousin can eat what he wants when he isn't
1: allowed? Oh, this is so heartbreaking for this little nephew. And I also want to say, like, from this parent's perspective, I get it in a similar boat in terms of like. How we feed our family compared to how other families around us feed their kids. And like right, right now, you know, when they're little, when they're toddlers, it like they don't notice, right? But as they get older, they start to think more and more. They'll start to ask more questions. And you're gonna have to figure out how, how to navigate this. But I also think this is a really interesting place that you could talk about differences and how differences are okay and that we're all different and sort of thinking about how we can tolerate differences between ourselves and other people because yeah i feel like the more tolerant we are of other people's differences like the better we will be just as a society you know i think it really depends a lot you know how you approach this depends a lot on how, on how much time you feel like you're going to be spending with them, like if you're going to be hanging out most weekends, then it. I wonder if it might be helpful to have a conversation with your sister-in-law and say like, this is how we approach food. And I know that this isn't how you do things, but how can we navigate this together? Like, can we come up with like an approach that works for both of us or that we can, that we both feel comfortable with? And and i think that with yeah like i said with your kid i mean first of all your nephew is going to want to hang out at your house all the time if you're like the you know if you've got the goods then you know i think they're they're going to be kind of excited about that i want to hang out with you all the time but but yeah like how having those conversations with your kids about how everyone eats differently and that's okay and but also maybe as they get older and start asking more questions, like being really curious with them of like, oh yeah, what do you yeah did you notice that you know little Charlie can only have two chocolate buttons? What did you think about that like how did you feel how would you feel if I said that you could only have two chocolate buttons and and just like get yeah, get them to think about it with you a little bit What do you think, Jeanette
0: I think well exactly the same you know I not navigate things exactly the same way that you have said I mean I've got a six-year-old who um, has come back from school and um, you know asked me like very similar questions how come I can eat this and I have this for snacks but actually my friend so-and-so says that she's not allowed snacks or she's only allowed mm. fruit for a snack and that kind of thing and it's i very much like uh, like to promote having a really nice talk about it and obviously a nice like age appropriate one and going okay well it's because and having a really lovely like chat about it for however her attention span lasts yes. in that moment
1: <laughs> what is what what kind of things does your 6 year old say about about this what do they come up with
0: Um, she looks confused a lot of the time but not with what I say as in I'll kind of turn things on so a recent one was um one of the one of her friends isn't allowed to have chocolate at the moment because her mum's not allowed to have chocolate in the house because she's not eating chocolate at the moment because she's on Mm -hmm. a diet and she was like but why um why isn't she allowed to have chocolate and I was like well yeah why oh, isn't, isn't she, she about yeah you you tell me and she kind of sits there like scratching her head and she was like but chocolate's not bad is it and I was like no because because cho- she's come back previously saying is chocolate bad for me because that's what school had taught them mm-hmm. and I'd obviously have a conversation neutralizing that as you know as we do and um and she was like so it's not bad and I was like well no, how do you feel about chocolate? And she was like, "Well, it makes me feel," and I think she literally put her arms out. It makes me feel wonderful, and put her Aww. arms out like this. You can't see <laughs> when you're listening to it, but my arms. Janette's got
1: are her right. arms up above her head. Yeah, great. Hearing.
0: It makes me feel wonderful. And then she said that she felt really sad for her friend that she couldn't have yeah. that wonderful
1: feeling. And that, like, that's it—is that. It- if we can get our, like, we don't need to tell our kids what to think yeah. because we can get them to tap into that embodied experience of like, and there's research that shows this as well, that like kids understand how foods feel in their body and that's how they make sense of their world is that embodied experience. And so if you can help them, you know, instead of like reflexively being like, oh, well, that's ridiculous why would they think that or do that like just probing them and and getting them to connect with you know what feels right and true for them I feel like that's the best that we can do with this
0: they're so good at it as well and I think because we've dieted because we've internalized all these messaging about diets and how food is good and bad just when you start children off really young with just allowing them to Mm -hmm. listen to themselves and how they feel what I've been like my my six-year-old also came out she she likes she really likes iceberg lettuce Mm -hmm. loves it and I was like so what what about the lettuce do you really love and she literally got up from her table and started kind of um, like dancing. And she was like, it makes me feel like I want to do this because it's really crunchy. And I really <laughs> like it's crunchy. And she had like a bit of a jig. And I love that because I was like, that sounds like it makes you feel really happy, and really joyous. And she was yeah. like, yeah, it does. Yeah. And to be able to have that communication with her body Mm-hmm. to be able to know that that's how that food makes her feel and obviously mm-hmm. she has food that doesn't make her feel good and sometimes she'll say to me oh what was it the other day that made her feel sad I think it was mashed potato or something she was I I did some lazy mash which had like I leave the um, skins of the potato on. ones Very, yeah 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 and she really didn't enjoy the sensory quality of having the potato skins mm-hmm. in with the mash I would be mad at you for that too yeah, sorry. It was just really <laughs> lazy. and uh, she said it how sad it made her feel and she really did look really yeah. sad about this mashed potato and obviously she didn't have to eat it because
1: yeah you it. don't you just don't her. yeah I was thinking about this last night actually so we had dinner last night and I Avery had asked for some chocolate mm. um with dinner and so I put we have like loads of easter eggs in at the moment because we're just normalizing easter over here easter chocolate um so i put one out on his tray and he had like some fruit and i think he had like some frozen mango and like blueberries and he had like like the main that we were having and he ate all of his main and he didn't touch his fruit and he didn't touch his chocolate and at first my mind went to like oh that's interesting he didn't eat his chocolate it's like you know he's he's listening to himself like right? something in him made him listen to himself and think oh it, you know he didn't want his chocolate but something also made him listen to himself and say i don't want my fruit and i think we often it made me think about how we are more willing to trust our kids when they don't eat the the so called bad food according to diet culture but if they don't want the you know the more healthy in inverted commas food like fruit or their veggies, we're so much quicker to dismiss their experiences yeah and and I just thought about that double standard is in absolutely no way related to this question, <laughs> <But> <laughs> I just like yeah, That's I don't right, know mhm i've
0: i've I've experienced exactly the same, and yeah, it's so much easier, isn't it, to kind of yeah, no, I'm mm-hmm. really. Like that pointing that
1: out, definitely. Yeah. All right. Where are we up to with these questions? Okay, I have a question for you, Jeanette, from Louisa. And just a little content warning here. I'm gonna use the wording that um Louisa has put and it involves the O word. So just skip past this bit if you don't wanna hear that. But Louisa says I'm overweight, and then she says I'm not sure best how best to describe myself. My dad was overweight before he died at 65 of heart disease. Are there things I can read slash learn about generational approaches to weight and emotional eating slash being happy in your body, which my dad wasn't? Thanks. So I feel like there's a lot to unpack in this question, Jeanette. Where do we start?
0: I'd like to start with, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad you know mm-hmm. 65 is actually really yeah. you know young age at the moment isn't it so I can totally understand any fear that has really come from um your dad you know passing away at this age from heart disease as well I mean I'm sure that your brain has automatically gone to oh my goodness my weight what am I yes. eating am I eating mm-hmm. too much fat too much um salt you know am I healthy enough? You know, what can I, what can I do within my control? Like, what can I do? And um, I want to add that um, because you've actually, you've named yourself as overweight and, you know, we, BMI is, is like awful. We know that BMI is awful. We know that BMI is a really terrible way to, um, for the healthcare professionals to, Um, say how whether they're assuming someone is healthy or unhealthy whereas a chart with some numbers can't accurately name us as unhealthy or healthy Mm -hmm. or accurately say and what kind of risk we have in our bodies as well because it's really putting fatness and health kind of together and kind of connecting that together so I'm going to kind of take that you feel that you're overweight i don't know if you are in a large body yourself because bmi scale and um the actual level of um, your, the size or the level of fatness that you're at and mm-hmm. um, they don't go together either but i know we can talk about a lot of internalized fat phobia and anti-fatness in relation to this as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: we know that regardless of our weight we can have healthy behaviors that can really um, be protective towards us can really support our health and support our heart, heart health none of that means that it's a guarantee but it means that we can feel supportive um, regardless of what we're doing with the size of our body we know that we don't have to diet to actually reduce our risk of any cardiovascular disease and any, any of your problems with that and really good things to read around that is really having a look at the uh, fact dr uk mm-hmm. and their um, twitter and their posts as well are really good um who else reagan as well um you'll have to put these yeah. things in the show notes i'll
1: link to it so reagan chastain has a great uh, newsletter called um weight and healthcare and it's basically how to approach the healthcare system in a weight inclusive way so she unpacks things like you were saying about how BMI is really not a helpful measure of our health it's just a way of like categorizing bodies and gatekeeping healthcare which is so fucked up when you think about it um I would also say Aubrey Gordon's work might be a good place to. Yeah. So Aubrey has two books, which I will link to in the show notes. So one of them is called what we don't talk about when we talk about fat and the other one, one that just came out, um, like a month or so ago is, um, you have to lose weight and other myths. So I would start there in terms of like an accessible place to learn about internalized weight stigma, medical fat phobia, anti-fat bias in general. I also wanted to offer you, don't say this explicitly, but I wondered as well about, you know, if what part of what you're looking for here is something around how you can care for yourself and prevent, or I don't want to say prevent ill health, because we also know that a lot of this is out of our control. A lot of our health is determined by um, the social determinants of health, as well as things like our genetics. Um, But what can you do to care for yourself in a weight inclusive, non-diet way? And there are things that you can do, like you alluded to, Jeanette, um, around, you know, how we care for ourselves. And I want to say as well that that's not an obligation you're not obligated to be healthy but I also understand why you might want to find things that help you feel better and and care for yourself so I wanted to offer that we put together a weight inclusive guide to dyslipidemia or so elevated um, blood cholesterol and so if that is something that you're navigating then that might be a helpful guide because it talks about supportive behaviors and in a kind of like more holistic way than just like Lose weight, go on a diet. So I'll link to that in the show notes too. But I think like something for me that, that kind of came up was like this idea of not, not sure how best to describe myself. And I, I wondered if we should like talk a little bit about language and, yeah. you know, how we kind of, yeah, the language that we use around, around fat bodies. Like this is something that I, we were talking before we started recording and it's like it's something that I grapple with a lot because like technically according to my BMI I am the o-word right and but at the same time I'm straight sized, right I can go into most clothes shops and be able to find something um I can fit into you know normal not normal what am I trying to say I can fit into plain seats without worrying about um being really uncomfortable like I don't have to think about access but at the same time there are you know real material things that I have to navigate like you know the example that I was giving you that I said to you earlier is like if I were to get pregnant I would be obese at my booking appointment and that would have implications for the type of care that I was and the type of birth that I was entitled to and my maternity pathway would be completely different because of that. So there's this, it's kind of, I suppose what I'm grappling with is, you know, the loss of privilege as your body gets bigger while still having a fuck ton of thin privilege. <laughs> I don't even know if that what my point was there, but what did it bring up for you? For
0: me, it brings up, a lot about the conversation to do with mid like um, mid-size
1: mid-size yeah yeah that's
0: what it kind of brings up because you know can I
1: explain that
0: yeah so mid-size is something that people tend to use and they use it in this is the thing this is the tricky thing that I find with mid-size because I find that it it can be useful and could be useful for a lot of people but i also feel like it is used for some people to distance themselves away from fatness yes. so it may be used by people who maybe small fats so mm-hmm. small fats are generally people who who are like a 18 to 20 size. so that's like a uk
1: 18 to yeah. 20 yeah cuz most um, of our listeners are in the us which i find really weird but that oh, okay. whatever yeah so uk 18 to 20 Yes, I'm not would sure be...
0: what that the US, but a UK 18 to 20, around about, and it's you know when we're talking about small fat, we're talking about a person in a body who's just beginning to experience a lot more, um, well, experience quite a big loss of um, body privilege, but not quite enough that they still that you know they still fit in society. It's just mm-hmm. that it's uncomfortable to fit in society. Then you have mid fat which is it's more uncomfortable you you know you you can fit into most seats but you might end up um, getting bruises from them Mm -hmm. and then you get super fat which is probably won't be able to fit in some of the seats and Mm -hmm. you will be getting bruises you will be hurting from sitting in you know so we have this kind of level of uh, body privilege we can talk about um and some mid-sized people use the term mid-sized to distance themselves because of their own internalized fat phobia Mm. from calling themselves a small fat or identifying as fatness but then also we have a group of people who potentially you know like you were saying who potentially are still experiencing some form of um anti-fatness really and because of the bmi scale and that kind of thing um but aren't fat, but Mm -hmm. aren't straight sized. So they're trying to carve out a space for them in like a community way to try, but it's really difficult. I think, I think it's difficult to find that space, which is why I'm very much of the opinion of, you know, we need to try and find a way that is honoring our fattest people Yes. and trying to find equity and um you know lift up our our fattest you know our, our infinity fat people whilst at the same time recognizing that there are people who are in smaller bodies who are still experiencing some form of um, anti-fatness as well
1: yeah and I think there were a couple of different things that you talked about there Jeanette that I just want to like go back to so when you use the terms small fats, mid fat, large fat, and then super fat and infinity fat, you're talking about what is often referred to as like fat degrees or the fat spectrum, right? And so what that names is how, as our body size gets bigger, we lose more and more privilege and become further and further marginalized. Yes. And Linda from uh, Fluffy Kitten Party has done a great explainer on fatigues, And it would be, I think it's a really helpful resource if this is new to you. Like, how do you, like, what language do we use to describe our bodies? The midsize thing is a whole fucking trip. <laughs> I think, like, in its original inception, it was this really important kind of bridge for people between who were at the top end of the um straight size spectrum so maybe like a 16 to 18 yeah who or like the bottom size of the plus size spectrum when it comes to like clothing let's say because I think that really the mid thing is about clothing a lot of times yeah. Yeah. and um like how it can be you know it, it can be really tricky if, if you're in that spot to like do i do i like try and shop in straight size stores where like it might not quite fit but then the plus size stuff doesn't always fit either so it's like it, like it can be a, a tricky space to be in and you still have a fuck ton of body privilege right yeah and then but what it feels like has happened is that like objectively straight size people like people who are like a size 12 Yeah, UK size 12 have co-opted this term Mm -hmm. and just because they're not like stick thin they are like oh there's like it's yeah it's kind of they're using it to 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 kind of like take up space basically yeah when actually they're just like a fraction away from the ideal yeah and they're still comparing themselves to That thin ideal. And that's where I think the problem is.
0: Yeah. And that's the problem of society, isn't it? That's the problem that if we're not conforming to this really quite strict view of, you know, thinness Mm -hmm. and beauty, then, you know, you've we've got a whole load of different people trying to find community in the way that best fits them. And I think that's where fat liberation really can come in because. You know, everyone's trying to carve out their own space for them. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually body liberation and, and fat liberation is all about widening that lens to other people. We're not just trying to carve out a space for ourselves individually. Yes. We're trying to carve out spaces and take up space in a way that honors other people's space that they're taking up as well. And uplifting the bodies that are the most marginalized Mm -hmm. and going okay these are the people who need this space and we want them to have this space they deserve unconditionally to have this space as well and that's when I think I think it's really unhelpful when we have people who are trying to create community and take up their own space when they're not thinking about their impact on the other people and marginalized bodies around them.
1: Yeah. And and that's I think the thing about um the mid-sized trend is that there is no acknowledgement of either thin privilege mm. or of body liberation or of how there are people that are way more oppressed than, you know, struggling to find clothes for your size 12 body. Mm. Right. Definitely. So okay, I think do we have time for one more question? Shall we do one more? And then yeah. Let's do this. Okay so this is a question from Janice. I've been on a
0: disordered eating recovery journey for about three years. My rejection of diet culture and calling out of weight stigma particularly in the medical profession has been a dramatic change. My husband is not on this journey with me and is still fully committed to diet and exercise equals health and well-being. We've had arguments about it because when I call out weight stigma, he gets defensive. He now says he won't speak to me about body image, food, eating because he feels attacked. He also feels that my views are just subjective opinions and there is no evidence that what I say is true. I get upset and then I can't think objectively either. What is the easiest and Quick data I or research that backs up our non diet weight inclusive approach to health? Or should I just accept that this is something we really can't talk about at the moment and I continue my work and get in therapy for support? I really appreciate your advice and obviously love the podcast and content.
1: Oh, oh Janice, 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 Janice. I felt really sad when this. Question came in, we can, and we will give you papers that you can read. That's fine. But that's so far from the point here. It's so far from the point because even if this is just your subjective experience, that really fucking matters. That's so important. And you deserve to have your experiences validated. And so I just want to do that. First and foremost, like your experience of weight stigma, and particularly, like you say, in the medical profession, that's so valid, and it matters, and it's important, and I'm really sorry that that has been dismissed or trivialized. It's obviously not just in your head. So yeah, that's the first thing that I wanted to offer, is that that really matters, and that's really important. And I'm really sorry that you know someone who you love and care about has dismissed you like that. That must be extremely painful. what are you thinking, Jeanette? Like I can see you? Yeah, just looking
0: really sad as well i i just I just really feel for Janice, and I also think this is something that comes up a fair bit as well, mm-hmm. especially if And the person themselves is in a large body, in a fat body, and especially if the partner is in a fat or large body themselves, because obviously Mm -hmm. they've got a lot of work to be doing themselves around, you know, rejecting diet culture and working on challenging their internalized fat phobia. But I also, it it's difficult doing that journey with. Without a supportive partner, and it's even more difficult doing it with someone who wants to challenge, even if it's something that's subjective, that's Mm -hmm. hard. But also, even if we gave, you know, give research and, and show papers, I find it doesn't necessarily always, sometimes it does change people's mind because people need to be in... The right place themselves to be able to hear the message. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this is why me and Laura aren't millionaires because (laughs) we can't go out and force people into rejecting diet culture. You've almost got to get to this kind of place where you are ready to step into that space and ready to start doing this work of challenging everything that you've believed and everything you've internalized for pretty much the whole of our lives. And it's difficult, so difficult. Also thinking that the partner, your partner isn't in the same place that you are in relation to that as well. So I'm sorry that you're experiencing this really.
1: Yeah. And I don't know that I really have a a helpful answer or solution. You know, I just wonder if you have like a safe place, like That you can talk about these things and it doesn't sound like you necessarily do but I wonder what it would like take to get you to be able to have conversations in a way that you know neither one of you feels attacked and you both have your experiences held and and validated and I don't know if that's like couples counseling or therapy or you know even working with like a Jeanette or a Laura or like you know somebody to help you process that together, and, and I, I'll link to some papers in the show notes. But like you say, Jeanette, I don't know if that's gonna nudge the dial any really. But the the one that I'm thinking of is the Tracy Tilka paper, the weight inclusive versus weight normative approach to health, because it really neatly sort of lays out the issues. And summarizes the evidence. There was, um, I did a Q&A with a weight inclusive researcher Lizzie Pope uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she shared some research literature as well that that um, and I think she includes that that Tilka paper, that she uses when she's trying to convince other researchers that this is the way to approach things. Any other like resources or or things that you think would be helpful? I think maybe,
0: you know, in the long term, something that you can do as a couple to be able to validate each other, trying to find mm-hmm. that way forward is important. But in the short term, is there any way of you finding um, your community? You know, have yeah. you got someone outside of your partner that you can discuss this with? Can you find... Someone? can you find someone through like Facebook groups you know is there anyone because there's loads of really good um, anti-diet non-diet approach Facebook groups that you can find and although online friendship doesn't replace and obviously shouldn't replace the relationship that you have with your partner but it could be a really good short-term solution so you still have someone that you can talk to this, about, talk about all of your experiences about who can validate you, who can go, well, actually, yeah, this is what I'm experiencing yeah. as well, which might be useful for you.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm curious to hear, like, if you have, you know, if, if your husband has always been on board with this for you, or if that's been like a learning curve, I feel like I'm pretty lucky in that, Dave listens to all my podcasts and reads all my shit. Like he's the first person to to see anything, like to like read any drafts of anything I've written. So he like he just knows (laughs) that if he didn't get on board, it would be divorce, right? But I'm I'm curious, like, did you have that? You know, because you've been on your own journey and we talked about that in the last podcast we did together, but how was what was that experience like for you?
0: I've had a very similar experience as you to be honest I Mm. am incredibly lucky that um no matter what I have decided to do with my body my husband has always been supportive has always championed my own body autonomy Mm. and I'm really I'm really lucky like exactly the same as you he's always the first person to listen to podcasts and the first person to read my posts and you know, he reads all my emails that he sends out. I don't know why he subscribes to them, but he also reads those, you know. So I'm really lucky. I think the place that I struggle with personally is my family. I have a member of my family who understandably, really understandably for her own personal reasons, is entrenched in diet culture and i do set boundaries with mm. with her and she knows that and we've we've had the we've had the the talk that um she's not allowed to talk about weight loss and diets and food being good and bad around the children especially but she doesn't necessarily understand what i do mm. she's still very much you know fat equals bad my family are all people who are in fat bodies like when yeah. you look at both sides of the when I wear I was I was never destined in my genetics to have a small body I am six foot tall <laughs> and I'm also fat I am supposed to be taking up a lot of space <laughs> And when I look at the you know the generations before mm-hmm. me they're the same they're also four yeah. people who are fat as well which comes with a lot of generational you know diet culture but yeah it, it's hard it's hard when you don't have family and you don't have you know in this case a partner who is supportive
1: Mm -hmm. of of your own body autonomy and clearly the answer is you have to become an anti-diet nutritionist like that's the and then your husband will get it all right easy. just do that we
0: just literally (laughs) talk at them for so long that they have to live to us and
1: internalize (laughs) yeah they have to they have to get it otherwise you threaten them with the divorce so (laughs) <laughs> um, thank you for sharing that Jeanette. I really appreciate it. I think it's all always like just so much more helpful to hear people's personal experience so yeah i'm I'm so glad that you were here to answer these questions with me. I don't feel like we give Janice a very satisfying answer. I'm sorry, Janice, hopefully there is something to to think about in that, but um, yeah, I think we we've covered a lot of ground here. There are a couple of questions that we didn't get to, so maybe we'll do a part two at some point and yeah finish them up. Should we share our snacks? So at the end of every episode, my guest and I share something that they're snacking on. So it can be like a podcast or a book or a movie or a show or like literal snacks. So what do you have for us?
0: The first thing that came to mind of what I have been snacking on recently is a podcast. Mm -hmm. And um, I have been a very busy bee at the moment. So having a podcast. that has been away from like anti-dietness and thinking about fatness and stuff has been a really lovely respite to me and it's um my and it's probably one it's been out for a while I think they're finishing it up my dad writes a porno oh
1: yeah I haven't
0: listened to that in so long I keep on it I, I started listening to it back in 2019 and then I kind of forgot about that. Every now and then I kind of pick up and go, oh, my goodness, I need this in my life. And it's usually when I'm really busy. Like usually when I'm really busy, my yeah. brain just needs something. Yeah. And something really funny. And so that's what I've been snacking on at the moment. Oh, How about
1: that's you? so funny. We've been watching a lot of Bob's Burgers, <laughs> <laughs> which I love, Bob's Burgers, because... Our kid goes to bed so freaking late these days. So we usually have like, you know, we just want to watch something mindless for like 20 minutes before we go to bed, have a snack, and then like and I mean an actual food snack, watch a show. So that yeah, that's like that's what we've been watching lately. Um, but also like the other thing that I had, because just because it's sitting on my desk, this is super bougie. Um because I was like having a bad day, and I went into ASAP, which is always a mistake, and I bought what is it? It's um like body bam, pink grapefruit, orange rind, and lemon rind. And it's in this like paint tube. I love. I love.
0: That. I love that.
1: Yeah, it's so it smells. I wish like I'm I'm holding it up to you, like you can smell it. You can't, but it's like I really citrusy and fresh, and like yeah, mm-hmm. I just it's very. It's like a complete indulgence, but I love it. So yeah, that's my snack also. Um, Jeanette, tell us where people can find more about you and your work and a little bit of what you're up to. Okay. Um, You can find me on Instagram, The Mindset Nutritionist.
0: You can find my freebie, which is great on my website, www.mindsetnutritionist.co.uk
1: oh thank you so much yeah go download Jeanette's freebie it's all about getting in the picture and yeah being there for the the moment and not being like hyper focused on how you look or your body thank you so much for saying that for me (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks for listening everyone and thank you Jeanette for being here and helping us answer all those questions thank you so much for having me Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation, plus links we discussed in the episode, and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Where i'm exploring topics around bodies identity and appetite especially as it relates to parenting although it's totally cool if you're not a parent you're welcome to we're building a really awesome community of cool creative and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating can i have another snack is hosted by me laura thomas edited by julie kelly our funky artwork is by caitlin pricer and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support, so thank you for being here and valuing my work, and I'll catch you next week.